It's episode 41 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky. Across the table is Ryan Topp, and subbing for JP this week as he puts a lot of B-minuses on papers is Paul Noonan, a writer from BP Milwaukee. How are you doing, Paul? Doing well. How are you? Good. So do we want to start off right away with our, our punny uh, beer names? The punny beer names? Did you come up with the punny beer? No, I did not. No, Paul? You, you had it on Twitter this week, right? Uh, did I? I thought you had I did. some. Oh, I did. Yeah, yeah you I did. did. I okay, forgot that's what this was. Word. And my phone is has the game on. So oh, I can't no. Okay. okay. Well, I, you know, so I, I, I'm a home brewer, so I name my beers after brewer things almost all the time. So I've had Ron Renicki's Long Off Saison in honor of my former website. <laughs> and uh, Uni's 463 DIPA. That was the one I really liked. There we go. Because I, I like IPAs. I'm drinking an IPA right now, actually. When I think now we can add Ryan Braun's Ale and Bach. Oh, that is good. horrible. That's right? Boo. Right? Boo. boo. No, we don't like that one. No, let's, let's make it. Oh, it's a Bach. We can't do that. I was going to say, let's make it a Berliner Weiss, and then we can add a special ingredient to fix it. But <laughs> uh, it doesn't work with that type. So. There we go. <laughs> so, but yeah, Paul, thanks for being here this week. We appreciate it. Like I said, JP's out. So it's always uh, good to find someone else to step in for him for, for a minute. We need that other smart opinion on the podcast. <laughs> Well, it's good that to be like a JP's shot. And he's not here to argue with me, so it's even better. No, yeah, we'll find all the stuff that JP doesn't like to talk about, and we'll discuss it at length. So, okay, uh, you can find the podcast by rating and reviewing uh, Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. And Paul's you'll find at Badger Noonan. Badger Noonan. So, yeah, go go find Badger Noonan. You probably follow him already, I'm sure, if you listen to the podcast. There's a good chance. So, uh, And then finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. Milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by Carbon Four Brewing. From Dragon Flute to Block Party to Fantasy Factory, Fantasy Factory IPA. I should know that one. That's their big flagship, right? Yes. So I don't know how you uh, messed that up. Yeah, K Four specializes in English style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. On May 25th, Carbon 4 re-releases their summer seasonal Idiot Farm. It's an 8.4% ABV, but this super boozy and hoppy beer is incredibly drinkable. So head over to Carbon 4's Taproom on Kinsman Boulevard on Madison's east side and uh, look for bottles of Idiot Farm at a retailer near you. As always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer brilliance. Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the MixPre 3 and MixPre 6. For more, informa- for more information, visit sounddevices.com. Okay, so uh, since we last had a podcast, which we recorded early, we recorded on a Friday last time, yeah, and that really worked out well. And it worked out really well because that was kind of like when the Brewers started streaking. Yes, it was. that was when it began. Yeah, so we were kind of like, uh, you know, this hasn't gone well so far because they had a little bit of a rough <laughs> stretch. And now they've won seven of nine on this road trip, and we're kind of right in the middle of the uh, game against the final game against the Twins. Yeah, Minnesota just took a one nothing lead, but... Still, if a lot, lot of ball game left. If they're seven and ten on this road trip, uh, that's, that's pretty successful. Yeah. Especially against three teams that made the playoffs last year. I know all three aren't likely to make it again this year. Though I guess Colorado and 
uh, Arizona are both in pretty good positions. So yeah, they look they're fine so far, and um, like all of these teams are still as talented as they were last year. It's not like they're rolling over just garbage. Like I know we got we took some flack for the Cincinnati start to the season, but all of these teams are perfectly good teams. And um, by the way, it's tied. <laughs> oh, there oh. we go. Okay, you're ahead of us because Steve's streaming. But yeah, I mean, like and the other thing is, just one card, so oh, there it is. As he does, as he does. Yep, there. Yep, there it is. Well, I guess if you know, we we're, were wondering if uh, Aguilar would would make the team this year, and if he was cut, you know, who would pick him up? <laughs> Clearly, Minnesota would want to go out and get Jesus Aguilar. Yeah, I'd, indeed. Yeah, is that his third of the series? Uh, fourth of the s- or fourth. It's a lot. He's hit a lot, a lot of home runs. Yeah. Yeah. He's on a, a real power binge at the moment, which yeah. helps a lot because they need that from the right side. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, and I think everybody was kind of nervous about, you know, Eric Thames being out. Now Ryan Braun's down on the 10 day DL, you know, who's going to be that, that threat at first base and Aguilar sure has uh, picked it up. Yeah, so and he can play in multiple positions, so it's even better. <laughs> that was, that was truly entertaining when he leapt for that ball, that rocket, that was hit almost over his head and he made yep. that play. I audibly like yelled like in celebration. I mean, I mean he's, a, he's a giant man. Really, only he could have made that play. Yeah. It probably wouldn't have been made by Shaw, who's a little bit shorter. Yeah, you, you think he's a statue out there, but that's a big freaking statue to try to hit a ball pass. So, uh, yeah, it's fun to watch. That's for sure. Um, well, I'm always amazed when I watch Aguilar at first base around the bag when he stretches for a ball and gets like down into the splits. Yep. I'm looking at that thinking what that would be like for me. And they just looks horrifically painful. Like I, I look at him and I go, how does he have any tendons left? It's almost like he's a professional <laughs> athlete and you're not. Yeah. <laughs> almost. almost. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's, he's been looking good. And again, the Brewers, I mean, they've, they've had, they've had the pitching that you hope for, especially, you know, we had the, the Peralta start in there last weekend. Yeah. Which we didn't get a chance to talk about. No, well, and that whole thing, yeah. When I said that in the last podcast that I didn't think Freddie Peralta was going to come up and make much of an impact this year, and then he's up two days later striking out a, a franchise. And you say I only make fun of you, and I, I gave you a chance to like step yeah, up and say, did. hey, yeah, this Freddie Peralta kid could uh, come up and do something. Yeah, you, you well, threw he, it out there. I choked he on showed it. Us, he showed us some of the bad, too, in his last start, though. He does get wild, he does miss his spots, and he does walk people, so... There's yeah. still some stuff to clean up with Freddie Peralta. He just showed you what he can do, which is exciting enough. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, when you're 21 years old, hey, you know, there's going to be yeah. some some speed bumps there. So, And I think he Absolutely. had a bit of a tight zone yesterday, wasn't it? It was a bit of a tight zone. Um, you could really, I started paying more attention to it late, but it was tight all day. I mean, the other thing about him is this has been part of his makeup in the minor leagues, too. He walks too many hitters down there as well. So it's not particularly surprising. No, no, and, not at all. And once the book gets out on a guy in the major leagues, you can forgive the Rockies a bit for being a little over aggressive because nobody had seen it yet at the big league level. Now, after that start, everybody's going to be paying attention and figuring out what to do with him. And it's not such a hard solution to just say, well, until he gets you, you know, with a couple strikes, you really shouldn't be swinging very much. And that's what the Twins hitters did to him on Saturday night. And it worked pretty well for them so well and he had been relying on his fastball primarily I think that first overwhelming yeah, yeah he threw like 90, 91 <laughs> of 97 pitches extent. yeah nine, it was like 91 of 97 uh pitches in that first and in game. fairness it is a couple different fastballs he, he's it is. Throwing That's the multiple thing. looks 
It's like it's like ten different fastballs. It, <laughs> it's not like he throws one pitch. It's all over the place. Well, and he's pitched well in Colorado in AAA for the Brewers. And to do that, you have to be a primarily a fastball pitcher. Right. That that definitely played into it. Where you're not going to when you're in Colorado, you're not going to get the advantage of any sort of you know break on a curveball or whatever. So you have to be fastball oriented. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like yesterday he was leaning on his fastball early. And, you know, the Twins had it scouted a bit. Um, and then they he, just weren't swinging early in the count. Yeah. But then he added his curve, I think, an inning or two in. And he started to get some swings and misses. That seemed to change it up a little bit. He got on a little bit of a roll, but, you know, obviously he still got hit around a little bit. So it, it might just be a matter of let's see the kid get used to everything, pitch in a different environment other than Colorado and see how much of the rest of his repertoire can kind of boost what he can do out there. So it'll be fun to watch. Um, another guy that's fun to watch is Josh Hader, who has, again, just dominated for the past week. Um, he had another two and a third uh, innings on Saturday night against Minnesota um, for the 5-4 win. He had six strikeouts. So, I mean, Paul, what, what are you thinking when you see a guy like Josh Hader out there dominate like this? Um, that... First of all, I think that they use him exactly correctly, and it's a nice bit of pure luck that they have a guy this dominant, and they're smart enough to do what they do with him because they basically just use him to extend starts and clean up messes. And I mean, no one's better at cleaning up messes than him. No one touches the ball. <laughs> I also I don't really understand why he's as dominant as he is because it's not like a Raldis Chapman throwing 102 out there all the time. I know it's deceptive. I know he's a tall, lanky guy, but he's only throwing 94, 95. And it's just like embarrassing people. I, I honestly don't even quite get why he's as good as he is, but he's so super fun to watch. And I hope that I like, I don't want to turn him into a starter. I don't want to turn him into a closer. I, I want to pitch two innings twice a week and just annihilate people and to have that happen all season until they make the playoffs and then annihilate people in the playoffs a little more frequently. The best theory I've heard about why people have trouble with it is it's weird angles. I think Breen brought that up. Mm -hmm. That it's all coming in from strange angles that hitters aren't used to seeing. And it's I like agree nothing. with that. But like even righties, like you're coming in with like that half sidearm three quarters. And I understand why lefties struggle with them very much. But I can't believe how dominant he is against righties too. It feels like they would be able to see it so much better. And it's not super gas. It, it I mean, I'm sure JP's right. Like it, angles that have to be a big part of it not being able to pick up a consistent release point but it's just insane I've, i don't think i've ever seen a guy be quite this dominant for this long a time especially pitching the way he does like it's not a closer going gas out for three hitters it's basically you know a third of a start most of the time well i mean i think another thing to remember though is he'll bring it you know 94 ish for his fastball but he'll he'll drop in his breaking stuff or off-speed pitches. They'll come in at like 83, 84. So you have a 10-mile-per-hour difference between his fastball and his breaking stuff. Which oh, for sure. That's generally yeah, what yeah. you need to be successful is is a good 10-mile-an-hour gap to really get guys off Yeah, balance. it's no Pedro 20-mile-an-hour yeah. gap, but it's, well, yeah, 10, 10 <laughs> will do it. And the thing I noticed last night watching him go was he was really, against those right-handed batters you were talking about, he was exceptional at dotting the, that fastball on the outside corner against right yeah, batters. True. And it was coming in, and you could see how for a hitter it would be difficult because it's coming in at that, it, at that exaggerated angle where it really doesn't look like it's going to be a strike. And they don't want to swing at it 
because they know that there's just really not much they're going to do with it to make any sort of decent contact on that pitch with it way out. And they're going to have to extend their arms and really get out there. They can't drive it. There's not much they can do about it. And it doesn't look like a great pitch. And then there it is that he dots it on the outside corner and it, you know, maybe gets called straight and maybe doesn't, but either way, there's not much they can do with it. And the fact that they know that it can be called a strike <laughs> means they have to start swinging and then they're, hopeless at that point so yeah so right now uh haters he's already got 1.2 uh warp on baseball prospectus which is more than he had all of last season yeah it's it's nuts and i think is he like 11th or 13th in strikeouts like league-wide yeah league-wide he's up there i mean when when in an appearance (laughs) he again he struck out six against minnesota so i mean if you're a relief pitcher and in an appearance you're striking out you know, three, four, five guys up to six, well, up to eight. Up to and eight. you're and you're getting maybe three appearances for every two starts that a starter gets generally. Maybe three to three and a half appearances. Yeah, you can make up that difference and get yourself in that in that stratosphere pretty quickly, which is but that isn't even like the craziest number. The craziest number for me is you look at and you put it down here, Steve. His DRA is 1.01 it went up it went up yeah his dra went it up. went up when when we looked at it i think on on friday when we were kind of talking yeah. about it he was at 0.99 and it went up to 1.01 after <laughs> after a six strikeout out against the twins i mean it is so other and the other thing is remember jonathan judge one of the creators of dra was on here and he was explaining that you have to take that not against era but you're taking that against runs allowed that's what that stat comps to and mm-hmm. i mean He's probably getting somewhat unlucky in in the amount of runs he's given up. I mean, he has a one point three. Well, he's, gi- he's given up a few home runs. Yeah, and that's yeah. probably somewhat unlucky. It's just it's astounding. I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, I mean, Paul, is there anybody that you can think of that you've seen that's close to Josh Hader? I was actually looking at this a little bit because um, I was looking for comps for a piece I wrote just to see if anybody had done it before. I was um, I read. Uh, the, the only rule is that has to work last year. And one of my friends just read it too. And they mentioned that the Royals and Rays may have done this. So I looked, um, I think it was Wade Davis was somewhat comparable for the Royals like 2015. But um, of course, Ned Yost is the manager there. So he would not use him for extended periods of time. He did use him as kind of a fireman, but not only for three outs. And then um, just looking for guys who were as dominant as Hader for small stretches I had forgotten this happened, um, but Dylan Betances, who I don't know how to say his name. Oh, Dylan Betances, yeah. Dylan Betances was as dominant as Hater for like two years um, at some point. So I, I won't say I've never seen it before, and it can't happen, but it's really rare. And like getting to watch it is much more impressive than just reading about it. Yeah. Well, and again, it'll be interesting to see how well he holds up considering the number of innings he's on pace to pitch. You know, when he's going to push... At this point, 90 innings, he might push up to, up to 100 innings. Um, we'll see how well he holds up. But again, he's getting a decent amount of time between each appearance. He's not, you know, getting up every night and warming up and then having to trot out there. And, right. And yeah, there's no way to prove this as of this point in time. But this use, usage pattern seems better than like one inning relief guy usage patterns and maybe starters too. Like you go out there, you work like consistently for a couple innings. And then you get multiple days off. I mean, he doesn't really pitch back-to-back. I think it's happened once this year. I think it's happened once this year, but not very often. So, um, like, having, I think recovery time is important. And, you know, 
think if you think about like how injuries tend to work, I don't know if you guys have ever like blown a knee or anything, but like part of the rehab is building the muscle around it. Part of what causes it is if you let that go a little bit and put more stress on tendons. And I kind of think starting going super high leverage repeatedly, it, when you have muscle fatigue, that's when you tear stuff. So I don't know, this is just theorizing. I could be wrong. I'm not the doctor, but well, I kind of like this. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've we talked about the fact that, uh, you know, teams seem to be counting the, those, the number of times a relief pitcher gets up and warms up as something that actually counts towards the number of pitches they're throwing and some of the fatigue that's going to set in over the course of the season. So, you yeah. know, I, I think that's, that's a big change in... I, I think what's going on with front offices right now. Well, and I think other teams are going to be looking very carefully at what the Brewers are doing, but not just the Brewers. There are some other teams that are leaning in these directions. The Yankees have done some of this stuff. Teams are going to be studying what they're doing to see how this works and if this is a, a viable path going forward. But I think the other thing we have to remember is that what makes this work and why people aren't losing their minds is that the other pitchers in the bullpen have been so good that when Josh Hader isn't available, they're shutting teams down, and there isn't that you know cry to use Hader all the time because they have other guys. They can get away with it. If you didn't have as deep a bullpen, it might be a harder, at least from a PR perspective, to be able to sell it. But because they have so many guys who can get outs and are doing such a phenomenal job, you know, Jeremy Jeffress and Albers, basically everybody's having a good year out there almost. Well, I had to laugh because uh, Harry Pavlidis um, from – he's still a baseball perspective. Yes, correct? as yeah. far as I know. Oh, yeah. He, he, yeah. Um, he commented last night that he was watching the game and the Twins announcers were kind of grousing about the fact that Hayter was going to pitch more than one inning. Yep, so they, I, were, they, were, they were despondent that he was coming back out and like – it's kind of like remind, you can't send that big kid back out there in Little League because he just dominates everybody. And it, I think it that's kind of the reaction was like when a team is playing the Patriots in football and Bill Belichick decides to go for it on fourth down. <laughs> like you think you stop them, and then it's like, oh man, they're actually going to do that, which you know is the the sign that you made the right decision. Like you're you're upset they're going for it. That's what it was. It was that reaction. It was like, oh, we thought we were done. What the heck? Like we got to see this guy again. Yeah, I, it's just changing that perception, and, and yep. I, most teams haven't gotten used to it yet. But so. I think it's coming fairly quickly. It is. We're oh, seeing yeah. There have been guys, you know, the Andrew Millers and people like that, that have been in the game for a little while now that I think have at least been used as a fireman, even if they haven't been going multiple innings. Well, and we've seen just bullpens being used all kinds of weird ways. Well, Arizona is using Archie Bradley in the middle of the game, as opposed to, even though he's their best relief pitcher, they're not, you know, just bringing him in the ninth inning. So, well, and the thing we were going to talk about next, too. I mean, And I was just going to get to that. You know, speaking <laughs> speaking of experiments, uh, the, the Rays, Tampa Bay has kind of they've done it twice this weekend correct right i think he's romo might in be pitching row. right now actually yeah two games yes. in a row they have started with closer reliever is he Rugi. no yeah Rugi. yeah Rugi. Yeah. Yeah. uh former former ace closer sergio romo yeah um, column a is now their closer but yeah so he uh facing the uh angels of anaheim i was gonna say los angeles angels no they're actually just the la angels now are they just they are whatever yeah. There was a whole conversation about the, that this week. The Mike Trout Angels, um, <laughs> the the fighting Trouts and Otani. Yeah, since since Otani, the top, yeah. yeah, since the top of their order is so right-handed heavy, they're bringing in Romo to face the first like three batters. And, and let's also say, and Mike Sosha is a dope. Well, because yeah, you can fix this very easily just by writing things differently. Well, especially when you know that like they announce it ahead of time. 
Right, exactly. Hey, this is what we're going to do. And Mike Sosha says, Durr, I already wrote my lineup. I did it a week ago. Right. So, anyways, Romo's going to start for the first inning, and then they're going to bring in, was it Tyler Yarborough? He was the one who started on Saturday. Or, he was their second inning starter in Saturday night. Okay, the first game they did this for. We haven't seen what they've done on Sunday yet. Yeah. but And he came in and pitched for six and a third innings. So, the idea was Yarborough doesn't, didn't go through the order a third time, the top of the order, until they were like 24 outs into the game. Right. So, that way, he didn't hit that third time through the order kind of... Uh, barrier that I think a lot of teams are setting up for starting pitchers nowadays. So, Paul, you had some thoughts on this. Like, how so, how, how much is this going to be a unique thing to the Rays, and how much of this is maybe something that uh, teams are going to start adapting moving forward? So the last piece I wrote for BP Milwaukee was on Hader, and it was um, specific to the idea that he's even if he's not the guy, he's sort of the the bridge of the third time through the order when the Brewers start a guy, they actually have a lot of guys who are bad the third time through the order, like really, really bad. And they, they basically let those guys go until they're in trouble. They bring Hader in for the fifth, sixth, whenever that happens. Sometimes they'll bring in Jeffress if they're in trouble, if like they need a double player, whatever he's been doing to escape trouble, but they can rely on their bullpen to basically take those innings and let them go. And the, the science behind that is that the, if you graph out all of baseball, all games, the highest scoring innings are the first is the highest scoring inning. The sixth is the second and the fifth is the third highest scoring inning. And those two are because it's the third time through the order. Most of the time, the first is because the team can line up their one, two and three hitters exactly how they want and four or five after that. So one of the conclusions I came to that is like, you should do the, the closer in the first inning to get through the one, two, three hitters. That's when runs are scored. That's an opportunity to, to keep runs down if you can they're setting up their lineup you can set up your best pitcher to face them that's a, you're perfectly in your in, in your rights to do that and um i've seen I, i've seen some arguments against it but i don't quite get them like i've seen like what if what if that guy struggles what do you do well sometimes that happens with your starting pitcher too and you have to deal with that it's a problem you have to deal with problems but it has side benefits too because you can start the game with a specialist like a lefty a luki or a Rugi, and they got to set their lineup and you can go opposite after that. And you can keep some mystery to who the actual starter is going to be after that if you want to. So I actually think there's a lot of advantages to it. And I wouldn't be that surprised if it became kind of a thing. Maybe not every time. Like you don't want to, like maybe you have Kershaw, you don't want to go put in some guy in front of him. But, you know, for your back end, it makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm not sure why it wouldn't catch on other than you need probably another pitcher on your team to do it. So you know the first time I heard about this? The first time I ever saw this floated, you know who it was? Doug Melvin used to talk about this back in like 2005, 2006, 2007. They never did it, but they talked about it, and they, I believe they did it at the minor league level at some points because they were doing the piggybacking starters thing, and they were trying to figure out ways to get around some of these issues that they were having because they always had you know pitching deficiencies. That was a hallmark oh, of the Melvin did, era. Did they? Did they have a little bit of issue uh, <laughs> grooming some pitchers through the system? Well, Just I mean, how much of this is an issue of you need to bring pitchers up through the minors being used to this system, basically? I mean, Paul, do you think starters are going to have to learn a different way to warm up if this is the way that they're going to operate? Or are we just talking about guys in the back of the rotation who probably have spent time in the bullpen anyways? I, I don't. I think the only guy it impacts is the the guy who actually starts the game because your starter can warm up just like normal and be assured that he will be in probably in the second. I mean, maybe you let the 
opening start to go a little longer, but he'll know he's going to start at some point and go five to six innings. And I don't really see how it impacts him. I could even see selling it to him by the fact that, you know, right now, if you don't go five innings, you're not eligible for a win. If you come in after the facts, after an inning has been pitched, you're a lot more likely to qualify for a win. <laughs> if you want to appeal to the dopey starters who care about such things and their agents who have to arbitrate for them, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I don't really think it impacts that much other than having a reliever who's willing to do it. And I, I don't know, like I, I know chemistry matters, but it seems like kind of an easy sell. Like, like being the closer is cool. Like maybe you can make being the starter cool. Maybe being the starter turns into its own position. That is that guy back end, front end. You can sell t-shirts with both of them on it. Like, there's all kinds of ways to make that work. Well, what statistic are you going to come up with then? I think you got to you got to crown one of those statistics, and then that way you can you know these guys have that to hang their hat on in arbitration. Then they'll go for it <laughs> as soon as it can be is it, when it can be monetized. That's when it really works. Yeah, and all you have to do is come up with the stat. That's how saves happen. He, I mean, yeah, dr- saves are such a garbage. R.I.P. Jerome Holtzman. Let's just call it opens. Any opens. Open. <laughs> is, um, is there a way to not get an open? If you give up a run, you don't get an open. There you go. How about that? Yeah. I um, think we got it. I mean, we're looking at things are, are changing really quickly in terms of how teams are willing to use their their pitching staffs and how flexible they're willing to be. We'll see how well this translates. It's one thing when it's being done in Milwaukee or Tampa Bay. I'm interested to see how some of this stuff is going to fly if it's somebody tries to do some of this stuff in New York or oh, Boston, Boston or Philly. Philly. They'll be rioting. Well, look at how people in Philly reacted to anything weird Gabe Kapler did. And granted, Kapler did well, make some mistakes. I was going to yeah, say, Kapler had a rough start, though, too. But, but they, were, yes. they were ready to jump on anything he did because he was different. They decided, what was it, that he was, he was the, the Phillies' Chip Kelly and they were going to run him out of town. Like, that was the local media before he even managed a game. Like, that was the narrative that already existed. So when people try to innovate in those type of places, it's going to be tougher. So, yeah, but I mean, you look at like, you know, L.A. has been going short on starts for, you know, their rotation for a while. They have Kershaw, um, but they don't have a problem pulling Rich Hill or Kenta Maeda or guys like that after, it's, you know, five minutes. It's one minutes. of those things where if it catches on and it proves to work, eventually it'll be a liability to not do it. And it just might take a little bit of time, even in those places. But, it has um, to be proven elsewhere, though. So, I mean, yeah. in, a, in a sense, it's an advantage that a smaller market has over a larger market. You can be a little bit more flexible and more creative without having to worry about, you know, what 10 tabloids are going to try to do to you about it. Just what the Shepherd Express has to say. <laughs> I'm trying to think where else in Milwaukee where we have some kind of... <laughs> well, I mean, that's not even, like, that's not a tabloid like the way no, New York Post is a tabloid. I it's understand a weekly. That. <laughs> what the Isthmus in Madison is writing in their sports page. <laughs> there you go. They still have a sports page, or is it all just arts? I've not looked on Isthmus in so long. It's arts and ads for strip clubs. <laughs> Dave Bagel. No, no, Dave Bagel. That's an on Milwaukee thing. That's, a, that's an on Milwaukee. No, thing. no, 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 no. He's not with on Milwaukee anymore. He has the new Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Oh, that's right. Oh yeah, that oh, is yeah. right. Yeah, I haven't gone and, to that and in a little no while. No copyright lawyers. There's no. <laughs> There's no copyright lawyers, and I don't think there's a consistent font either. So good luck trying to read that without tearing your hair out. So, <laughs> um, okay. Anyways, we'll get to our first uh, Patreon question from Darren Jones. 
if you could adjust your preseason win total prediction for the Brewers, how significantly would you change it, if at all? Ryan, we'll start with you. So I think I was at 85. We were talking about this. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was 85. We were arguing over like a difference of three wins between the three of us when we did it. Yes, you were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was definitely 83, 84, 85, somewhere in there yeah. for all of you. Yeah. And I, I think I was the high man. On yes. It. Yeah, and I also said 85, but no playoffs. So that was that was a fun little needle okay, I was so, trying to thread. Yeah, so part of it was with the prop bet episode, yeah, where the line was set and then some of the stuff that went on with that. So anyways, yes, would you adjust? Anyway, yeah, um, I would nudge it up a couple wins at this point. I, At this point, I'd say, you know, 87, 88 wins seems pretty reasonable. I think it's they're more of that sort of a team than an 85-win team, but those margins are all so small, it, it's really impossible to say. So, Yeah, Paul, what did you think the Brewers were coming into the season? And I guess, would you change that now that you've seen I them? thought they'd be in the ballpark of 500. So I, I, if I, I don't know if I made an official pick, but 80, 81, 81 would have been about where I landed. And I'd have them actually pretty significantly better. Like, I would probably have them with 88, 89, and maybe even 92. Um, I, they're so much smarter than I thought they would be. Like, They've been lucky, not lucky. They've been good in one one run games. Usually that's luck, but they're built to win them. Like they they use their bullpen exactly correctly all the time. They don't make mistakes that way. Like and they think about how injured they've they've been unlucky if anything. So I I really 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 like front office coaching bullpen and like offense. I think will not be. I mean it's been coming around. It it's been good lately. So. I, I like their chances a lot more than I did before. They they have shown themselves to be, I think, a really good team early. I I, I think, like, I didn't have in the playoffs before, and now I do. So. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think I was at, like, 83 wins. Um, and I, I think the reason, I, I hate to go crazy on it, but the reason to bump them up, and I think JP has talked about this, is just that um, when you have a bullpen like this, you can outplay your win expectancy. Oh, yeah. That's so, the biggest way you outplay your win expectancy is to be really good in the bullpen. Yeah, and again, Paul was just pointing out that they've been really good in one-run games. So I, I think because of that, yeah. I mean, I would put them in the upper 80s. You know, I don't think... I, you're always going to have points of the season where they're playing really well and they look unbeatable. They're going to hit a road bump here coming up at some point where, you know, in in 10 games, they lose, you know, seven or eight because that's baseball. Because that's baseball. So, um, you know, I hate to go crazy with it, but yeah, they're going to be more, they're going to push closer to 90. I would still put them probably 87-ish. Do you think they're a playoff team now, though? Like, if they won 87 games? Like, do you think at this point, would you say, I think they're going to make the playoffs? I I would not say that because even with how well they've been playing, I think Pittsburgh's a game and a half behind, and then both St. Louis and Chicago are two and a half games behind them. Pittsburgh the feels like smoke and mirrors, but yeah. yeah. I think the Cubs are for real, but I think the Pirates are not. But I think that's going to dry up. But still, you have a two and a half game difference between first and tied for third or fourth no, place right. in the fourth division. Place, yeah. So, I mean, that's a really tight division. So it, when they hit that road bump, how well do they weather it against everybody else? Mm -hmm. You know, if it's, you know, the Cubs take off at that point, they can blow past them in the standings in a hurry like they did last season. And they're vulnerable right now in terms of their starting rotation is it's vulnerable. <laughs> Better word for that than that. It's they can't take a lot of hits to it without them being in some real trouble in terms of just getting guys who can get outs to start games. 
that's going to be you know, tricky if they start losing guys for any extended period of time. Yeah, but they can also fix themselves really easily. That's the obnoxious thing about them. Like they could, they they have resources. They can spend prospects. They can spend money. So even if they are weak for a little bit, it's just a matter of getting going up to the trade deadline, and they can buy pitching if they need to, or they can call guys up. I mean, they have people yeah. in AAA, you know, who are there to be called up. I mean, I still believe in Brandon Woodruff putting putting it together and being a reasonable starter. And yes. being a reasonable starter, um, they still have Corbin Burns. You know, they'd probably they have to make some roster moves to get him up, but. Right, because he's not on the forty man, but yeah, someone oh, else I'm to at, call. I meant the Cubs buying pitching. I, I oh, actually, the Cubs, I the, yeah, yeah. That's the annoying thing about that. That's why they're not. Their system isn't as deep as it was last year, though. It's, it's not, but they can still. They can always give out resources because they can always fix it on the back end. If they, yeah, but they they uh, can't they can't ship off Loy Loy Jimenez or Aglaber Torres, which yeah. is how they've made their big moves the last two years. They don't. Their best prospects are babies right now they have they have some young talent but they're very young so that's that's the tricky part for them they don't have also my point was if the cubs do go out and make a fix like that it's not going to be a jose quintana that they then have for a number of seasons they wouldn't be able to land jose quintana no they can't they don't have the the uh resources to be able to do that they don't have the 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 chips to be able to so but they can they can be annoying and basically get back in it for 18 but at least you don't have that long-term move that then makes you kind of you know scratch your head like how how you gonna get past this team in the future yeah so um now darren jones also asks uh do you think manny machado makes sense as a trade target for the brewers so if they do start to falter um you know we've had orlando arcia have some struggles i mean does it make sense to go out and get a manny machado no. <laughs> I are you going to be that? Are you going to yeah, lack that much nuance? I mean, a, there there is an answer. There is an answer to say yes. I mean, if you're going to do this, you're going to be giving up. Probably, I don't see any way you're doing it without giving up Keston Hira. And are you giving up Keston Hira for a two month rental of Manny Machado? I I don't see any logic because you're going to have to give up like Hura plus to do this. I, unless the market just does not materialize a Machado at all this summer. I don't see how you're doing it without giving up, you know, at least Hura probably burns. I mean, you're giving up top, top guys to rent a player for a couple months. And granted he is a possible MVP. He is having a monster year. I have him in every fantasy league. He is having a (laughs) godly year, but it's three months of a guy, and Look, then he's besides, gone. Besides, besides all that, that he's expensive to get and he's a rental, he's like he's not really a position of need. He, like yes, our, yes, he would be an upgrade, obviously, over Shaw and Arcia. Um, but Shaw and Arcia are not big problems. Shaw's good. Arcia, yeah, he can't hit really well, but he makes up for it in the field. I know Machado's an awesome fielder too, but like. It's it's not a huge spot of vulnerability. Like they could probably get as big a warp upgrade with some random second baseman, honestly, that doesn't cost them a lot of prospects. And I would rather go that or a catcher even. Like catcher's the big one, I think. Yeah, like th- there's no reason to do that. It's a weird fit, and they would have to unload too much to do it. But... I mean, do we think that he's going to go for that much again for like a two month rental? I'm just curious I... because the market is so much different now than it used to be. If I'm the Orioles, I'm pricing him that way until the last second. Well, sure, people, but people underrate like so. You get him a two month rental. It looks bad right now because everything's really speculative. But you get up to the trade deadline, 
and you're in a race with like one other team for a playoff spot and he bumps you, you know, he's awesome. He bumps you significantly. That's when you get big pays. Um, I think we make a mistake a lot of the time by looking at trade chips at like in the off season as more valuable than the trade deadline because you get more, more like an extra six months out of them. That's well, not six, but three or four months out of them. But you're, you're a lot more knowledgeable about your position at the trade deadline than you are in the off season. And sometimes that makes you do stupid things. And I think some big market team that either thinks they can resign him once they get him in tow or, you know, just doesn't care and can pay some other person in the offseason for whatever reason that position is weak will make that deal and do something dumb and drive the market up. But there's a lot of teams that can use Manny Machado. The Brewers just aren't particularly one of them. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it'll be interesting to see when they get to that point. The Brewers being active at the trade deadline wouldn't be surprising. The Brewers going out and getting Manny Machado would be. Right, just because they have not shown much of an inclination to give up on, you know, go for rentals. That's not really a thing we've seen David Stearns do. Yes, they brought in Swarzak last year, and they gave up their 16th best prospect to do it. I mean, that's a different, that's a, a totally different equation than what they would have to do to give up Machado or to get Machado. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay, moving on. Uh, Jason Donlinger has a Patreon question. Um, is Jonathan VR's recent hot streak the start of something real closer to 2016, or is this a lucky streak? Basically, are we seeing the answer at second base kind of happen in front of our eyes right now? Paul, do you have an answer for this? I do. His whole career is a lucky streak. Um, he is a lucky streak player. He is a, a fast BABIP guy, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it puts a ceiling on how good he can be. And unless he starts mashing home runs like hand over fist, then no, nothing has changed. As long as he's dependent on putting the ball in play and beating stuff out, sometimes those will fall, sometimes they won't. They happen to be falling a little bit more lately, but that's all it is. He's fine. If they can do better, they should, but he's fine. I mean, he's shown that he can do it for, you know, close to 162 games. So, I mean, do you think they should just kind of ride this out? Yeah, I mean, he's he's cheap. So he was legitimately great his first season, but I think the league adjusted to him and he has not adjusted back. And it's been a while now. So if he was going to adjust back, he should have done it by now. And his, his approach is bad. It's easy to see how he gets exploited. I just... Unless he takes a fundamental change to his hitting game that I don't think he can really do, they should ride him out. He's fine. But if they stumble across a second baseman who can play better, there's no reason to hold on to him anymore. He's he's, he's a guy. You get you have guys. That's fine. Get a new guy later. I think Jim suggested Jed Lowry last week, and that would make a lot of sense. That's yep. a, you know, a, a significant upgrade. I think what's interesting about VR is if you look back at that 2016 season where he was legitimately really good, he had 60 extra base hits in 168 hits. So he was legitimately driving the ball on a fairly consistent basis. I was just looking at it so far this year, and that's after on this road trip, he actually has shown more power than he had all year. He's been on a significant power binge on this trip, and it's still not that great. He has six extra base hits at this point in 37 hits coming into Sunday. So he's just not hitting the ball hard on a consistent basis the way he did at that one point. And if that doesn't come back, there's definitely a cap on how good he can be because, like you said, very bad bit dependent and doesn't walk to get on base that way. So there's only so much he can do. Yeah, and I mean, in 2016, he had an 80-point split between his uh, batting average and on-base percentage. Um, And right now, he's at about 45-point difference. 
I mean, he's not showing the patience at the plate that he did in 2016. Well, so this pitchers don't have to yeah. pitch around him at all. Well, the way again, that back then they had to they had to at least be careful of him because he could hurt them with power. But you this, can't do this that is now. but this is also more than you know. He's kind of hitting like 2016 without power. He's not. He's he has a little bit better batting average at the moment, but he isn't showing the patience at the plate. So I mean, at any point. You know, like Paul was just saying, he's a lucky player. So at any point, this luck could run out, especially if he's not able to just get on base any other way. Right. He's incredibly dependent on just making the balls have to fall in play the right way for him to be able to sneak out hits. And that's been a big part. He has been successful at that early this year, but that's not something you can count on. I mean, is he a good enough defensive second baseman that they can kind of just go with whatever he gives them at the plate? Yeah, I think he is. He's, I mean... He's an above-average second baseman. He's totally fine. He's not like an all-star caliber. He's not like Garcia on second base, but he's good. So he's like he's not a big problem. He's an area you can upgrade, but he's not a huge problem. It's not like they're throwing Bandy at catcher out there every day or anything like that. You know, it's, it's funny. A, he's one of those guys. He's mistake-prone, so that gets yeah. a lot of attention. When he blunders, people notice it and really get pissed <laughs> off at him for it. But... He has such good range that he makes up for a lot of that by getting to a lot of baseballs. Well, I mean, that's kind of an old tale in baseball is the guy who's got the range to make plays. And who who did we have at second base like that for a while? Yeah, there was a guy. Name's, uh, Name's escaping, escaping me right you? now. I can't remember that guy's name either. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. None of us know what we're talking about right no, now. Nobody knows. So um, anyways, but uh, you brought up uh, Bandy. Um, and we actually just got a question from Wayne Stolpa on Patreon. Okay, so you guys don't have it on the rundown. Oh, this is a surprise. This is a surprise question, and I'm reading it for the first time. Uh, when is the right time to do something about Bandy and bring up Nottingham? Uh, Bandy's line is uh, the worst of his career, um, and he was never good on offense with the Angels, and Nottingham appears to be doing well in AAA. So, uh, you know, again, we were talking about catcher being a need. Is this a point where they have an option in-house and they need to pull the trigger on it? I don't know. I mean, it's so hard. Nottingham is a work in progress. He's We've talked about this a bunch lately. Nottingham is a work in progress. He's still developing as a hitter and behind the plate. He is a, still young. He's only 23 years old. Catchers tend to mature later because there's so much that they have to do. So, I mean, maybe the, you can make an argument that Bandy's been bad enough that it, it could be time to just ride out with whatever Nottingham gives you. But then, you know, you're also exposing some depth issues, which Steve is now going to yell at me for saying. I don't need to yell at you. I've talked <laughs> about it before that if, if Bandy's not good enough right now, I don't know what other team would desperately need him. But I mean, Paul, do you advocate for just giving Nottingham a chance finally? Um, the, the short answer is it doesn't matter that much as long as Pena is healthy. Um, it becomes a problem if he, he's already been hurt once this year and they had Nottingham up for that. Uh, I'm like lukewarm on Nottingham too. So uh, I don't really, Bandy's bad at playing anybody over him is fine. And if you want to let Nottingham develop for a little bit longer, having a bad backup catcher is also fine. It doesn't matter that much. He plays once a week, who cares? But, um, I wouldn't give him too long of a leash. If Nottingham starts to show anything and he's already been up once, I would have him up again in the second to play, but, but he's going to be the backup catcher and he is still developing. And I would like him to get regular reps until he's actually good. Uh, really Peeney is the question more than Bandy, as long as Peeney is playing. 
also not great. He's okay, but not great and easy to upgrade over. Now, Pena had some injury issues earlier in the season. I mean, is part of keeping Bandy around just the fact that they want to make sure that they have the depth that they need? Pena's been taking so many baseballs off of various parts of his body. Yeah, he gets hit in the head a lot. And part of it probably is that. Like, veteran backup catcher's fine. And if he wants to be Charlie O'Brien for a few years, that's fine too. But um, it's one of those things where it's not urgent until it becomes an everyday problem. Like as, as soon as you don't have Pena or Pena level production and you have a spot to have Nottingham play every day, then yeah, you should do it. I think this is why it's so important that they look at catcher in bringing somebody in to potentially split time with Pena, not just be his backup, but actually allow you to get Pena some rest, especially as the second half wears on so that you have somebody there who can allow Pena to only have to play, you know, three or four times a week. That is going to be critical, I think, to sustaining him into the second half of the season. So, do you have any guys that you think that they should target? We talked about this. Lucroy and Humbley, both catchers out in the Bay Area, both guys. I mean, obviously, Lucroy, everybody's familiar with. And, you know, Nick Humbley is a guy that could come back and be a that kind of a, a player for them. He could come in and fill in, not just as a, a backup, but as a, a guy who takes some of the weight off of Pena and having to be out there as much as he is. So, okay. Um, sorry, I was reading the next question that we have, which is very long. Uh, we got an email question from Hunter Bierbach. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm going to go with Bierbach. So, um, which is kind of like the beer that I created for Ryan Braun. The Bierbach? Yeah. The Ailenbach? Bierbach? So, um, anyways, uh, he asks, he's, he's a fan out in Montana, so he can go see the Helena Brewers? Yes. And he, yes. Soon, very soon, because Montana's not that big, so I would imagine that's yes. just down the road, regardless it, of probably, where you're Probably yes, yes. <laughs> Though I mean, the the population centers in Montana aren't that far apart from each other. Like you can get around those areas, but you yeah. can get to the towns just avoid the moose. Yes. So um, he asks, uh, how much of the team's ability to not only cope but some ways thrive with basically three and a half starters after Nelson got hurt last year? Uh, how, what kind of effect did that have on the organization's perspective on starting and pitching this season? So do we think, is this a reason why they felt like they had a plan with the bullpen? I think they did. I think they were less concerned about the perceived deficiencies in the rotation because they felt like they had a ton of depth in the, not only in the, not only in the bullpen to be able to do this, but also with the rotation itself, because they have young guys that they feel like can potentially plug in and, and go that direction. So they weren't as worried as everybody was, and people still are. You see it in the national media, especially like John Heyman still talking about how, you know, the, the Brewers have to be terribly worried about their, their starting pitching situation. And if you watch the Brewers on a you know regular basis, it's not that worrisome. I mean... Nope. So it's obviously not worrisome at all. And I, I think I agree with that. Like, I, I don't, I'm sure that there were some analysts internally who thought that what they're doing now is a good idea, but it is always good to back up whatever you have done on paper with some natural experiments. And they got to run some last year. So um, I am sure that it played into it at least a little bit and maybe a lot in actually proving up a concept. I mean, we'll never know unless we talked to some of those guys, but it seems pretty likely. 
Um, I, I, he also asks, is this uh, basically are the Brewers experimenting with a new inefficiency in baseball? Is this something that other teams have been missing out on for, I guess, years now? I think so. I mean, and you're seeing it not just here. You're also seeing it in Tampa. You're seeing it in different extents that you mentioned Bradley before. You're seeing it in numerous places. Teams are starting to realize that the old formula needs to at least be heavily tweaked, if not completely thrown out. I mean, we haven't seen a team do the complete let's go 100% bullpens here and, and completely throw out the structure that's dominated the game forever. But teams are getting closer and closer to that point. And it'll be interesting to see if somebody does try to completely throw it out. And it yeah. was, I mean, Tony LaRusa did try it for a couple weeks in uh, with the Oakland A's in, what was it, like 93 or 94? He tried it. Mm-hmm. And I think Ron Darling was there, and he for, still talks for, about how for awful how it was. much for how much we hate Tony Larusa, you can still trace a lot of forward thinking to him. Right, he was willing to to change things. He he redefined the way, which the is why it's so funny. Used. He then went to Arizona and was such a backwards thinking front office. Uh, of well, guy. yeah, yes, it was a little weird. The other thing that I think makes this more likely is think about how much time when 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 they talk about prospects as potential starters. Think about how much time those guys spend in the minors perfecting a third pitch, just putting wear on arms and often having it not work out anyway. Like the cliche, I don't know it's cliche or if it's actual data, but that is that you need three pitches to actually start effectively and get through six or seven innings and get through the third time in the order. There's tons of guys who never developed a third pitch that have perfectly fine first and second pitches. And if you just ignore that and have them come up early and not pitch the sixth and seventh inning, I mean that might work better. It seems to be working better. And it gives you a larger supply of pitchers too. Um, I mean, part of this is bad for players and the union and salaries and that the Brewers are playing guys off the whole 40-man roster, calling guys up, setting them down. Um, those pitchers are less valuable because there's more of them. And I think that will also make this more attractive. Like you could just have these two-pitch fireballers pitch a ton and shuttle them back and forth between your AAA and your major league system, and it seems to work fine. But you do have to have a lot of them to make it work. I mean, it it takes, and part of why this is working for the Brewers is because they did build up such a depth of pitching prospects. Like this is not, this is not something that just any team I think could do. It's partially because well, yeah, you know, Freddie Peralta was from the uh, Adam Lynn trade, and both Adrian Hauser and Josh Hader came over for Carlos Gomez. Yep. Well, but my point over, was, I mean, Lind was, you know, when when they acquired, you know, Hader for Carlos Gomez, you know, a, a trade like that, that was a high profile trade. Nobody really paid attention to the Adam Lind trade. We're like, they traded him. They got some young guys. Hopefully they can pan out. And now you see, <laughs> yeah, you get, go get, you know, three guys who are 18, 19 years old. You're hoping to land one of them that can come up and contribute. And they may yeah. have done that. They have a lot and they are, they should be commended for it. But I also think if you, if you don't scout guys as, oh, this guy's, you know, this guy's change up might develop in three years. If you're like, well, this guy has a good fastball and this guy's got a good slider and his other pitches all suck, but who cares? Let's just get him anyway. Like, I think that might be sort of an unseen market inefficiency that, that they've been capitalizing on. Now, Paul, is is there a number of innings that teams are still going to need starters to go? Or, or are we looking at just the era of two times through the order for a starter and then you go to the bullpen? I think you probably can't do it with like five starters 
only pitching like four or five innings every start, that's going to kill. You only have 25 guys you can play any given game. And you do need offensive flexibility. You're going to need more offensive flexibility if every team does this with their pitching. Like at some point, you'll have to bounce back to react to all the pitchers being thrown at you. So, um, yeah, I think starters will have to go some amount. And I think you, you might see guys who are good at it become extra valuable because they'll become rarer and you know, they really save your bullpen and allow them to rest and all that good stuff. So, so having um, a Justin Verlander really gives the Astros that added flexibility. You know, but the thing is, yeah. are are we at the point where 200 innings is what 240? Two, yeah, I was going to say 240 used to be because that's what Verlander would do. Yeah, Verlander in his prime would go out there and give you 240 innings. Kershaw before well the last the, the last horse was would... kind of Roy Halladay. Like that dude was 250 most years if I remember right. I mean he yeah. was that guy was an absolute horse, and that's I think that's largely gone. You'll see so. guys you'll see guys poke up to like 220, 220. Yeah, but I think 220. But uh, you might still see it out of the super good guys. But it, there's going to be a big split. There'll be at some point like. It won't be like 240 down to 220 down to 200. It'll be like this guy goes 225 and this guy goes like 170. There'll be a, a huge split between the truly good and the not as good. I mean, that's what I think. Anyway. I know some of the old school people complain about this a little bit and they say, well, we don't know if some of these younger starters could be pushed to develop into that horse well, because they're not getting opportunities to do it. You know, those That's those true. old school guys didn't pitch 400 innings either, which the guys before them used to do. So, Well, yeah, and there's, there's a certain thing. If you go through baseball history, if you ever just kind of go on a deep dive into baseball reference and look at like some of the old World Series teams, you'll see – how many guys were absolute studs when they were 22, 23 years old? They came up and they set the world on fire as pitchers. And you've never heard of them because by 26, they were done. And like that is so common in baseball history that baseball was eating its young for the longest time. Yeah, we Especially take, when it comes to the arms. Like, yeah, you, you take for granted the, the you know, historic pitchers thinking that was the norm in right. some way. Because they were the survivors. They survived all the, the the trouble and the hardship that was put on them. But most of these guys just got wrecked and it didn't matter because the team didn't have any money invested in them anyway. So they didn't care. It was, you know, fine. They lost out on a pitcher that if they'd been a little more careful with, they maybe could have gotten more out of. But they just didn't care because they didn't have, you know, they weren't obligated to that guy for tons of money. So. I was setting you to, up to bring up how every uh, generation has that article about how the kids these days just aren't as tough as we were. Yes. And th- I mean, that's what it's going to be. We're going to see it happen again. Sure. You know, the, the guys who pitched in the, the nineties and early two thousands are probably going to complain about the number of relief pitchers, or I don't know, some closer is probably going to complain about how these guys don't pitch in the same high leverage situation of, you know, closing games that he used to, or something like that. And There's meanwhile, be... Mark Pryor won't have a seat at the table to be able to say, Hey guys, if they'd been a little bit smarter with me, I'd be going into the hall of fame right now. So shut up. Cause those guys don't build up. That guy doesn't get a seat at the table to speak the same way that, Freaking Jack Morris does. You know what I mean? Jack Morris is out there. He goes on rants about this stuff all the time in his broadcast job. And like he has the, the ability to do that because he survived. Whereas somebody who has had their career wrecked by you know, Dustus Baker, it that guy doesn't have that same opportunity. So, yeah, like I, it, it's, you know, and it's prior is an interesting one because that also shows where, 
you know, scouting is so inexact because he was, this guy's the perfect delivery. He's, and what was he, like six? Well, and then there were people and, that said he wasn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was, oh, well, you look at him, he was a specimen. I mean, like, that's what a pitcher is supposed to look like. Like, yeah. that's the picture that the guy, and supposedly perfect mechanics, that was what Peter Gammons always said, was supposedly perfect mechanics. Well, yeah, and then after that, I mean, we got that with the, oh, the, you know, this guy, prior throws with the inverted. Oh, God. <laughs> Inverted, inverted W, inverted W, which, which is, an is an M. M. W, yeah. Inverted W, which is an M, because uh, Strasburg has that as well. Yes, you know. So there's always those guys. So I mean, it, it's it's interesting, but I mean, how Paul? Is there any way to figure out where this is headed at this point? Like, you know, we went through an age of such specialization where guys were pitching, you know, less than an inning per appearance for so long, like. Are, are we just going to see more innings for more players, you know, besides starters who are probably going to pitch less? Is everything else going to stretch out from this point forward? Um, I think that people are more willing to go where the data leads them now instead of, like, roles were always stupid, and we always made fun of them because they were stupid. But you get a guy, like, Council is a good example of, I think, what you'll see going forward. He is a former player, and so he can talk to players and with, with their respect and on their terms. He is a front office guy, so he understands what is happening in the front office and what they are looking at and what they what information they possess and how it can be useful. And he's now a coach, and so he knows what he has to do. He understands the decisions he has to make tactically, and he can he can put all of that together and does. Like he, you know, he doesn't talk glowingly about analytics when he talks, but he talks jokingly, like, oh, it's you know, the analyst said this, and you know, they're probably making fun of me right now. Like he says stuff like that. And He's clearly in tune with his front office giving him information. He's clearly doing what they tell him to do and has no problem with it and knows part of his job is to sell it and make it palatable to guys if they wouldn't do it normally. And I think that that will become the norm because it, it works. And it, like we focus so not we, we're, but old-timey guys focus so long on you know chemistry that the players have to buy in, that managing personalities is harder than telling them to go play shifts. And that's probably true, but it's now part of your job. And if guys can't do that, like if you, if you need Dusty to be a player massager, like then you suck. You need a different job. You need somebody who can sell your tactics better. So that's where it'll go. Data will tell people where to go and they'll go there. When younger players are coming up with these expectations now in place. The, um, I don't know if either of you guys read Big Data Baseball by Travis Slawchik. He talked about how the Pirates, to get the shifting where they wanted it, they started introducing it two, three years ahead of time in the minors. And we're doing this on minor league fields, especially in spring training. The major leaguers could see it. And they could see that this was coming. And they saw how this was going to be implemented. And as some of those guys graduated up, they started to really push it and implement it. And that's how they did it. And because the players were accustomed to it, they just, you know, that's their normal. And I think the Brewers have that advantage with the pitching staff right now. Look how many guys are young and don't have any sort of real claim to like, I'm a veteran and this is how it's supposed to be done. Like who in their bullpen is that way that has any sort of claim to longstanding big league success? Albers and Jeffers have been around, yeah. but they're right. not longstanding. Not being a closer. Right. But neither one had like proven themselves as like, I need to be in the ninth inning or I'm an eighth inning guy, like that kind of thing. That wasn't, yeah. that wasn't there. So they had the, the ability to just say, no, this is the normal. You'll adjust to it. And this is what we're doing. 
where you maybe couldn't get away with that in all situations. Like, uh, who was it who said he would retire? Houston Street. Said, Houston Street, yeah. Yeah, said, I will retire if you try to bring me in in the seventh inning the way, like, Andrew Miller or whatever. I will just, I'll quit. Like, I'll take yep. my glove and I'll go home. Like, they don't have to deal with that because they don't have that guy. So it, I assume that they just stopped calling Houston Street. I, <laughs> I didn't know it was his choice. He's, he's like, famous for it. He, he says he can only close and nothing else. Yeah, uh, that was the, the old Mitch Williams line about how I can only close. And it was something about because and I he didn't need, do that that well. I need guys to swing wildly at my stuff. Otherwise, I won't be successful. And in the ninth, guys swing more. That was his, that was his logic. Guess. Okay, so it was not the pressure of the situation. It's not that he had some ability to embrace no, it's, the it's, pressure and be a better pitcher. It's, it's just he felt that worse. Yeah, the batters were stupid. The batters were stupid and were like jumpy to like swing at his junk that was out of the zone. Except for Joe Carter. <laughs> yes. That's still, yeah, one, one of those great moments. So uh, let's see. Not quite last question. We got one more I want to get to after this one. Uh, but Chris Rhinus asked, and I'm going to just paraphrase it real quick. Um, with the injury problems and some of the, uh, I guess, switch and shift in statistics that Ryan Braun's had, um, where are you guys on Ryan Braun? What do we think he's going to be? the rest of the season and going forward. I think we're going to disagree on this a little bit. I'm I'm with JP on this. I think that he has been mostly unlucky, that he's still driving the ball, that he's doing what he needs to do that way, um, and that it's mostly – that this will come around as long as he can be healthy and on the field, which is always a question for him. So that's the, that's the bigger question for me, not whether or not he will snap out of this, because I think he was still hitting the ball hard at a – I mean, Jim Randall off sure. all those statistics and we, yeah, it was pretty convincing to me. So sure. Paul, do you have a different perspective on this? Yeah. Um, so the statistic that's good to look at for him and you can look last year too, is check out his splits versus power pitchers versus medium pitchers and versus finesse pitchers. He, uh, he pounds the ever loving crap out of finesse pitchers and he is awful against power pitchers. And that tells me that, whether it is all those lingering injuries or just age, he's not catching up the fastballs. It that explains a lot of his problems. He's swinging at more things out of the zone. He's got to start his swing earlier. He is um, striking out more because he can't catch up to those. So um, he, I think, can still be useful. He has definitely been unlucky. Like we've all seen his hard lineout games, but I do think there's a way to get him out now, and I think it's a bad sign for how things are going to go. Um, Basically, I think every day of Ryan Braun is the best day of the rest of his career and that every subsequent day will be worse. So, um, and it, it won't be too long before he is not a starting outfielder on the team anymore. Um, he, I, I wouldn't put, I would not start him against power pitchers. I'd start him against lefties and finesse pitchers and that's pretty much it. And he also looks pretty, um, he looks bad on defense. I don't know if he had, statistically is bad on defense, but he, he looks pretty terrible running out there. So. Fortunately, uh, they're in a position with the the depth that they have where they don't have to play him necessarily against those tough right-handed power pitchers that you're talking about. They could back off of him. Well, they don't have to, but do they have the ability to tell Ryan Braun you're not playing today if he's healthy? I don't know. Maybe schedule. look at the schedule well in advance and start saying, oh, hey, we're going to do a scheduled off day for you <laughs> here. Um, so let's plan on that and, like, Hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> you know, here's what I think about Braun, and I, I think I've been 
I do believe that he can have that good season, but the injury issue, I think, is kind of what's cropping up now to say he just can't attain that anymore because I don't think he physically is going to be able to hold it together long enough. So even even if he has the ability for at-bats to hit the ball like he could, I, I don't think he's going to be able to do it day in and day out, and just the injuries are going to wear down on him to the point where I don't know if they're going to ask him to take days off because he's just going to be on the DL. I just think, like, you can't plan around him as your star anymore if you want to give him the Jeff Jenkins role, except the short side of it going forward, fine. But he also is, you know, he's not like Jeff Jenkins. He's a surly old man at this point, and uh, I think he's tough to manage. I, I think he wants to play and hit third, and um, I don't think he's good enough to do those things anymore. So I could see him becoming a problem. Um, he's still, like, he's okay. You can manage his time, but... He's not ever going to be that good anymore, and you should start just ignoring that he's on the team because they'll be better guys. You know, they, they've they been putting up some runs lately, and Braun hasn't really been in the lineup. Is it time when he's back to move him down? I would Ooh. definitely move him down. Oh, uh, he that is fit about it, but. opening a can of worms, yeah. Well, I mean, we had been complaining about the offense all season, and then now they start to put it together. Now, granted, it's it's a pretty short stretch in the grand scheme of things, but Ryan Braun, he's batting third. He's a pretty key cog in well, being able to okay. score runs. But the third hitter is one of those. It's that weird thing where if you look at the numbers, people have suggested, like, if you want to go pure sabermetric, like old school analysis on this, people have said for a long time that third hitter is actually not that key as position because it is the spot in the lineup that comes up most often with two outs and nobody on. I think it's the fifth most valuable position in the lineup. So yeah, well, yeah. Going by like if you're talking about the old like Tom Tango, like well, it used to be yeah. If you hit fourth, you were the cleanup hitter. That was the big thing. And then it was oh wait no, third hitter is your best hitter. And then it was two. ten years ago, ten plus years ago, it was like actually batting second should be your best hitter. But it's, it's still second, general. fourth, one through yeah. two, four, one, three. I think maybe three might even be lower. Three might be before after five. I don't know. Those are about the same, but. But it's so the, so three isn't necessarily a terrible spot for him if from that perspective. Like it's that's not terrible. I guess considering who's batting six that you'd move up. Like well, if you were gonna move him down and make it a demotion, it would have to be batting sixth. So, you know, what would be the chain? Would Yeah, I mean it depends on the day. It depends if if Eric Thames is back and healthy. I mean, it's batting order. It really doesn't matter that much. Yeah, right? let's, let's not spend... Batting order is that it, the batting order actually doesn't impact things that much. Yeah, worry, let's not spend that much more time. about playing because time we than have about batting order. Matters. Yeah, yeah, we have one last question, a more important question from Mitch Reichert, and he asks, how much do you think Eric Thames can bench? <laughs> I'm trying to picture like him at the Combine, like what that would look like at the NFL Combine, where they're... What are they throwing up? 220? Or is it 250? I think it's, two, it's, it's 220. It's 225, isn't it? 225. Yeah, something okay. like that. So they're throwing up 225 as many times as they can. Yeah. He would own those people at that. Like, he would be in the top, like, I don't know. I mean, what can he max out at? Uh, the number definitely doesn't start with a You know, this doesn't lower. this doesn't matter, so just pick a number. I mean, like mid fours? I don't know. I'll say 425. 425. He can do what he wants. That's what I'll say. Eric Thames can just do what he wants. But I mean, yeah, he is. Have you seen him? Like he is. Like I say, you can do what he wants. I'm sure you can <laughs> I'm just not keep to tell him he can't bench. If, for if he tells me he can bench more than that, I will agree with him. Yeah. <laughs> if he wants another plate, you just put it on there. By the way, speaking of Eric Thames, 
the thing that keeps coming back to me, that dude can have a career in broadcasting the second he retires. He, the read that he did for their promo that they have <laughs> was one of the best reads. I've, players don't, it stands out because most players do crappy reads for things like that. His read was so good. And I just, well, I watch it and I'm like, that man is a broadcaster in waiting. He's got everything like, you read about Eric Dame is basically, it makes him out to be kind of a genius. Like that he basically just, when he struggles, he studies, he goes home and doesn't go out and reads, watches tape and reads books and will tell you like, oh yeah, I was swinging too much at these and now I see this coming out of his hand better. And like, that's all he does. Like he just is a self-improvement guy. And I'm not surprised that he is super well-read and charismatic and he's great on everything he does. So, so now we just need to keep him healthy. Yes, healthy would be good because, you know, and it looked like this year they had it kind of worked out where they're going to keep at least like the hamstrings and stuff healthy because he he got kind of run out there a little Mm -hmm. too often, didn't get healed up in in seven. And then he got the freak injury, you know, where it's not like it's just a he hurt himself on a play where you can't really predict that. Yeah. So it was unfortunate, but we'll have him at least for half the season plus. So that'll be fun to get him back. Hopefully. And hopefully he will come back and that thumb will be you know, strong and ready to go. And he will be hitting for the kind of power he was when he left. Cause that man was doing damage. He was doing serious, serious damage. Yeah. So, uh, and, but like we were saying earlier, Aguilar is playing pretty well right now. So that's good to see. But anyways, that's going to do it for this week's show. So Paul, uh, where can we read everything you're writing? Um, you can read my baseball writing at BP Milwaukee. Um, my, Football writing, I write for the Shepherd Express um, when it is Packer season, and I also write for Acme Packing Company, the SB Nation Packer blog. So lots of places. And again, you should just be following at Badger Noonan on Twitter to find all that stuff. Hey, any Packer predictions for us this year you want to you know, give out right now? Sure. I think, I think OTAs, be- are they in OTAs right now? I don't. I, I'm a bad off-season Packer fan. I just don't care. I, I'm just saying, if it's OTAs, it's time for predictions. We got to figure out what's <laughs> happening in 20. I think they'll 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 be good as long as Aaron's healthy. But I, th- I think that they are a little bit behind the curve in terms of organization, and so um, I, I I don't really think they'll be Super Bowl contenders. They'll just be good. So, what about the Goot? Are you are you big on the Goot? Gutenkust, Gutenkust. I liked the, I liked how he handled the first part of the draft, but um, I had some issues with this, the back half. And there's not that much to go on on him, so I'm not sure. Um, you I don't like think it's a capers? That's good. Is it a market inefficiency to draft a punter and a long snapper? No, <laughs> the long snapper's fine. Seventh round picks aren't important, and you need to, uh, you do need a long slap snapper. But yeah, if you draft uh, that guy, you got him for like 20 years, right? Yeah, that's fine. But the punter, yeah, the Rob Davis retirement and some other uh, the the whole they they claim they don't need a good edge rusher to make Mike Patine's defense work, and we'll find out because they don't have one. So we'll see. Ryan, thoughts? I know that you're you're higher on the Packers than that. I mean, whatever. Or would you rather <laughs> talk about Liverpool? <laughs> yeah. I'm- Champions League final next week. Okay, like I said, that's going to do it this week for the show. You can join our Patreon mm-hmm. by visiting patreon.com slash tailgate. Patrons at the ball and glove level will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at tailgate. You can also submit questions to milwaukee.tailgate at gmail.com 
or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and in the Google Play Store. You can also leave reviews and help people find the podcast. So thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.